Grassroots, True Grit. This is Shenango Voice. Visit our website at shenangovoice.com, and if you enjoy our programming, share a link to our podcast with your friends. This episode of Shenango Voice is sponsored by the Bohemian Moon Restaurant. Bohemian Moon is kicking off their new Doshi Rock meal program in the first quarter of 2021. Doshi Rock is a monthly subscription meal plan featuring convenient weekly prepared meals for pickup or delivery. Dine-in service is available Wednesday through Saturday from 4.30 p.m. to 8 p.m. Dine-in times are subject to change, so please visit their website at twobakeriesandarestaurant.com or call 334-9480 for the current dine-in schedule and for more information about the safe and convenient Doshi Rock meal program. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Shenango Voice, a local public service podcast. Our mission is to inform, connect, and inspire Shenango County, New York, with information and stories that bring out the best in our community. This episode is part one of a two-part interview with retired New York State Trooper Liz Wonka. This Shenango County resident gives us an inside look at what it's like to be part of a law and order family what it takes to become a solid, dyed-in-the-wool community cop, and what it takes to hold the center with balanced and effective police work. This interview was recorded on November 29, 2020, after the murders of George Floyd and the resulting Black Lives Matter protests, and before the invasion of the Capitol in Washington, D.C. In our opening segment, we learn about Wonka's background, education, and training as a New York State trooper. In training from other departments, when you see in national responses to incidents and they talk about no chokeholds or whatever, well, we were never taught chokeholds. It was never suggested on my training that you use chokeholds. It was not a thing at all because it's a chokehold and it's not appropriate. So, mm-hmm. obviously, other agencies did because they talk about it. Mm-hmm. And say, oh, we'll have to ban this, or we're not going to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. I wonder um, if the bad guys got the memo, too. Right. You know? yeah. <laughs> and I mean, and again, that's like the other end of it, is that you can have training, and you can only speak to generalities, and the specifics get very different, you know? Yeah. And you can't say, well, you, you could or should or, you know, speaking to someone who had an incident Mm-hmm. Just recently in one of our communities uh, in the one of the neighboring counties, and they respond to a fight in a street, you know, and they show up, and oh, it's a man and a woman fighting, and they're all beat up and all intoxicated and everything. And the man made it, you know, kept trying to, uh, the officer was trying to interview the, the woman in the situation who was walking away and yelling and whatever, and... This person tries to block him, push him, get in his face, anything to try and provoke him. Uh And, you know, the officer wasn't going for it. But this went on for like a block. And so what what do you do? We've changed some laws recently where, you know, I, I, I recognize that bail, again, speaks to socioeconomic realities. And they've changed the law where um, before we could arrest and hold people, arraign them, 
uh, have bail set or whatever to ensure their return. Mm -hmm. And now we've decided we're not going to do that because it's unfair. But it has taken away, we can detain people to process them. You're supposed to give them an appearance ticket right at the scene and not take them anywhere. When you have a volatile situation, that's half the plan is the ability to get somebody out of the way, Mm -hmm. out of the the volatile situation. Mm -hmm. I know that you retired from the state troopers. Yes. That you had a really long and intense marriage with another police officer. Mm Mm-hmm. That that gives you a real dual, it gives you a look at state troopers and county. Mm-hmm. It gives you a look at male-female. Mm-hmm. It gives you a look at, at the way your husband came and supported you. Mm-hmm. And like without that level of support, things might have been a little different for mm-hmm. you. But because he came in and moved as a partner, mm-hmm. that you're talking from multiple points mm-hmm. of expertise okay. and experience. So um, join the state police after taking a, a statewide competitive exam and um, passing all the requirements, background, uh, education, uh, psychological background, um, personal background checks, financial background checks. And I graduated from Colgate University with a BA in comparative literature. I don't remember if there was a college requirement at all then. Uh, now we do have a college requirement, um, but at the time it was, was lesser or not existent. What, what made you go toward law, law enforcement? It was something I was interested in ever since I was young. And after college, I had a... Um, fellowship from the Japanese government, and I worked in Japan for a year in the education field, uh, working for a prefectural board of education. And I grew up in a family that was involved in social justice issues, and certainly uh, Japan was wonderful and fascinating. And while it had um, a lot of things I I admired, there were things uh, in the social justice sphere that I I would want to critique or change. And it really came down to, well, if that's what you want to do, you really should be doing that in your hometown and not going someplace else. But I came to the decision that I liked living in New York and I, I did not want to live motivated by money. And you think about what motivates All you. All the prospective yeah. state troopers out there take note. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, you look at what, what motivates you to work and what motivates you to live where you live. And I realized that I wanted to be in the, in the United States. I li- liked upstate New York. And that interest that I had always had in um, uh, criminal justice and policing was still there. And an opportunity presented itself, and I took it, and I was able to get it. It's the perfect answer because it, it shows the arc, the story arc. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, long, that long process of looking and seeing and sailing to the next dot mm-hmm. and the next dot and the next dot on your, the storyline. The advice I had gotten from professionals was that if you really wanted to be a police officer, the police would give you training, so you didn't need a criminal justice background necessarily. 
you needed a good all-around background. But I wanted to ask you about your college. Did they require you to have a degree? No, at that time they did not. No, so but I they, was, they do now? They require now a it's, Well, now I believe they do hours. I haven't looked to see what they require okay. today. But when I left, they required about the equivalent of, of a two-year degree. Okay. But you didn't necessarily have to have a, a degree. You just needed the hours. I you see. Know? Okay. So, and part of that is really so you have an ability to... Um, evaluate, discern, communicate, comprehend, mm -hmm. you know, complicated laws. And lawyers study for how long? And, you know, <laughs> you have police officers out there who are involved in the same sort of stuff and need to understand the criminal procedure law. So you ended up in how long as a state trooper? I was 30 years um, as a state trooper. And I started in Norwich. As all troopers do, they start as, as a trooper on, on the road. And, and so I, I worked in Norwich for about, I think, six years. Did you pick Norwich or was it just assigned? To Basically you? assigned. Uh, they pull you for where you, what general area you would like to be. But, you know, they say, give us three ideas and maybe you'll get one of them and maybe you won't, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. And it's based on, on the troop and never on a specific station. So when you retired, you retired as a sergeant? Yes, a ser sergeant with the station commander. Okay, and as station commander, what was your uh, charge? I was the um, member in charge of the Norwich station and of the personnel there and of the physical plant there and of, um, you know, uh, all, all the duties that we performed from SP Norwich. Um, <clears throat> so I'm trying to think at that time if we had about 12 or 15 troopers uh, I supervised. Um, and there was also uh, an investigator's presence, which I was responsible for their physical plant and how things went to the BCI. But that is a, administratively a, a slightly different structure within the state police as far as the supervision of it and the division of duties goes. Um, so I was in charge of the troopers and of the, the barracks and of the vehicles and of, of all of that there. I um, first left Norwich when I was selected to um, get my master's degree at the University of Albany under a state police program that was um, for professional development and at that time, they were generally trying to put through about six troopers a year um, through the master's program at the University of Albany in criminal justice. And um, so they would select two troopers, two investigators, and two officers to go through the master's program. And I was selected to do that in 1988-89. And uh, after I got my master's degree, I... Uh, came back to Norwich and then I was promoted to investigator and sent to New York City to work in uh, the drug task force there where we worked with the NYPD, the DEA, um, Customs and Immigration um, all together on um, drug enforcement in, in New York City primarily. But we are sworn in as federal officers, so again there I ended up with extended jurisdiction during that time 
where I had enforcement authority in New Jersey and, and surrounding states as well. And then uh, they started a, a program they called CNET, which was a community narcotics enforcement team, which was developed um, in response at that time to the problem of drug activity within communities, within neighborhoods that appeared obvious to everybody and caused a lot of um, problems as far as, you know, loitering, larceny, uh, unhealthy conditions, dangerous behavior, that sort of thing. But typically it was not easy or well enforced because all the drug involvement knew who the police were and the police knew who they were, but people would call and say, well, we know so-and-so's dealing drugs. Well, how do you know it? Well, there's not something... guys in a row coming to the door. And right, <laughs> right. But unfortunately, that in and of itself is right. not enough to get you a search warrant, to get you the right to go in. You know, it it's uh, not as easy to justify it under our laws with just that type of information. You need something more. And so they developed the community narcotics enforcement team so you could have police officers respond to an area to investigate that kind of activity that were not known to the public or as easily identified by the public as police officers, you know, to work undercover to get the evidence that we needed to make arrests, to try and respond to the needs of the community that said, we don't want this activity right in front of us, at our schools, you know, right. on, on the corner, on the street. On right. the street. Exactly. Why isn't anyone doing anything? We know what it is. Why don't you do anything? Well, you needed to get sufficient evidence to do that. So they formed that, that unit, and I was part of that um, initial team that, that worked um, in the community narcotics enforcement team, and I did that for about oh, 11 or 12 years. And um, during that time, I was promoted to sergeant, but I remained in my position as investigator. This is, again, a, a not really important administrative function of how the state police works. And then there came a time when I had told my husband if, if the sergeant's position ever opened up in SP Norwich, I would put in for it. I would make a bid for it um, so that I could be closer to home uh, because my job carried me. I was away from home a lot. I covered a much larger jurisdiction and frequently was away overnight. Mm -hmm. And at that point, we had small children and um, oh so, okay, so lots of mileage, lots yeah. of time away. Time away, yeah. And Did that program work? Seen that. It was effective in many ways, and it was responsive in ways that people wanted. And then right now, we're seeing a pushback against low-level lawbreakers of, of drug laws being punished, and people saying, well, we don't want that. We think, you know, we need to do something different, that the, that isn't working so well. So... Um, again, things get changed and um, so focus is changed. So in your 30-year career, you saw a, a real sprawling change. You retired how many yes. years ago? Um, I retired in 2013. In the second segment of our episode, Officer Wonka talks about how police work 
and Chenango County changed during the time that she was a state trooper. Okay, so in that 30-year career, that was the, the 80s, the mm -hmm. 90s, the 2000s. 2000. That was a lot of change in Norwich, particularly yes. in that Chenango County area. That's a radical, in fact. Yes, quite, quite a lot of change. And a lot of change within a, the, the sheriff's department, for instance. When I started, um, the sheriff's deputies shared duties between policing duties and um, correctional officer duties. So one day you might be assigned to work in, in the correctional facility and the next day assigned to patrol the streets. They then ended up changing that requiring more training for their police officers, requiring more training for the um, corrections officers, and they decided to divide the duties and the pay and the everything else. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, my husband, when he first worked with the sheriff's department, did both for most of his career to the last. Um, he worked about 30 years as well. Well, that's interesting that you have that state trooper, county sheriff perspective mm -hmm. and that um, duality of the husband-wife, mm -hmm. the male-female in a pretty male uh, society. Yes. And yeah. that, I found that really interesting and that you worked together successfully, raised your family and stayed in the neighborhood, <laughs> which I'm sure must have made some really interesting situations. <laughs> How did you manage your family going back and forth like that? We were very fortunate very early on uh, because we both used to work rotating shifts. So throughout my career, I, I could work any day of the week and any hours of the day, uh, as would my husband. And he was asked by the, the judge, uh, the county judge at the time, to work in the county court. And at that time, it wasn't Again, now that has changed. It has become a state position. At the time, it was run by the, the county sheriff. So my husband um, took that job because of the kids so that he worked uh, days with weekends off, Monday through Friday with weekends off, and generally, you know, eight to five or something like that so that a daycare provider was a little easier to find. And then uh, as soon as he was able to retire, which he was able to do in 1997, <laughs> he did so that someone could be home with our kids. So I was very fortunate there that he was willing to do that because he loved his career and he, he w would have gladly stayed, but we, we needed, we, it, it was really hard to do. Um, sure. With the hours mm -hmm. and and the changing schedules, and it was it was difficult. Talk about hour. shifts that pass on the night. Yeah. My God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he was supportive when I was sent to New York City to work, and I would generally try and come home on the weekend, or he would come to New York on the weekends. But that was a a hardship that a lot of people would not easily. Take, and my husband did. I give him a lot of credit. He, he was wonderful. Full props. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, and not easy. And, you know, took a lot of guff over it. But 
Um, I'd like to digress about uh, when you we, you asked about uh, Diane about the changes in that Norwich that has changed over the years. Uh, can you speak a little bit about that? I, I, it's our population. I know is less than it was for sure. Mm -hmm. um, is it more diverse? Um, I, I know that uh, the churches at one point brought people in from when Yugoslavia was breaking up and we yes. had a lot of uh, people come over. I don't know if they were from Serbs Bosnia, or we Bosnia had or wherever. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if they're still here. Mm -hmm. uh, but And I know we have now, it seems to have more of a Mexican mm -hmm. population than we had. Uh, yes, we, we have um, become more diversified that way. I don't have stats or numbers no, to quote no. you, but just from a lot of knowledge and experience, as you said, you know, we... We know that there are a lot of um, Mexican workers working at certain businesses in our area, mm -hmm. whereas they were not right. there 25 years ago. So I'm wondering if you look back over that 30-year uh, period and the time that you know now, how would you summarize that? Having been, and Betty too, have been in the area in those years, I have a sense, some sense of what it was like, but not from law enforcement standpoint. So I'm wondering, you have yeah. so many viewpoints to bring yeah. to it. Our, our population, our society has ex undergone a lot of changes in the way we educate and the way we respond to things. So when I started as a trooper, certainly not everybody gave you respect as a police officer, but most people did. And most people said thank you, if, even if you were giving them a traffic ticket or arresting them, people would say thank you. But that was an important part of our training was to treat people with respect and how you would like to be treated, how you would like your family to be treated. How you would like to be arrested. Yes, yes. yeah, and, and, which is not at all, but... Uh, <laughs> But, you know, that was, that was one thing that had surprised me when I first started dating my husband and we would be out and about and people would greet him, you know, on the street. Hey, and I'd say, oh, who's that? And he'd say, well, that's somebody I've arrested a few times. Or <laughs> and, you know, he respected them and, and you know, okay, this, you did something that was unacceptable. That doesn't make you unacceptable you know mm -hmm. or that doesn't make you deserving of anything less than than the treatment you'd want to give any human being and and I think that was he was a little unusual in that and that he had so many people that thought well of him even when he even when in the moment maybe they were not saying thank you <laughs> at that particular time but when it was all said and done we had someone call us up probably 30 years after this person had, had encountered my husband. And he'd moved out west and changed his life and, you know, been a happy, successful person as far as we know. But he, he called our house. He looked us up. We always had our name in the phone book. You know, we didn't yeah. uh, at that time have their work. People often did have concerns. Do you really want anyone to be able to find you? Um, and we said, look, we want the people we care about to find us and let the chips fall where they may, you mm -hmm. know, and we were, we were okay with that. Even though we did a couple of times have local drug dealer call up and 
and harass and threaten us for a while um, mm -hmm. when he got out of prison. Yeah, anyway, this, this gentleman calls us up and says, I just wanted to call and say thank you. You know, 30 years ago, Mr. Wonka, you responded to whatever the situation was and arrested me, and, but you, you made such an impression and it helped me change my life. And I thought, wow, that's wonderful. Not as likely to see that now. And I'm glad you didn't block your calls just so you yeah. could get that one. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah. And, um, you know, I have two sons in law enforcement, um, one in the Louisville Metro Police Department in Kentucky and one in uh, a Broome County local police agency. And the way they are treated is very differently than the way I was treated when I started. People are much more aggressive with police officers, much more argumentative, much more willing to challenge um, without basis. You know, I, if anyone had, had a problem with what I was doing, say so, that's fine. But uh, you just have people now, I think I started to allude no, to a situation no, where, you know, just trying to provoke the police officer physically, well, with physical actions well, and verbal. that's interesting when you said that about the, the man who was um, giving the officer trouble all the way down the street, and I thought, what is it that you don't get? Yeah, and, and, and so, you know, we're, we're getting this, it's dangerous. Yeah. And police have training and have historical knowledge of incidents where unsuspecting police officers get murdered or seriously hurt. One of the first trainings I had when I was going through the academy, there had been a not too, uh, you know, in the recent past, there had been a, a state police investigator uh, shot and killed in his car when mm -hmm. a, a perpetrator they had arrested in the back seat, I think had a hidden weapon and was able to, you know, get out and, and uh, kill, kill the trooper and, and wound the other one. So handcuffs being too tight, all this, we do it for a reason. We, we control people for a reason. It's for safety and, and for ours and for the public and for the, the perpetrator themselves. But again, if you're Mr. Nice Guy, but you're just having a meltdown at a police officer, a lot of people now are, you know, you don't need to do this to me. Well, I don't know who or what you are <laughs> and I have to be safe. Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. I remember the days when, you know, if you saw a policeman on the street, you'd feel way better. Usually it was a guy, and yeah. he's working the beat, and it was a comfort that yes. they were on, on the job, and that was soothing. Yeah. And then you've gone from a place where people might say thank you for a ticket to mm -hmm. just the uniform itself bringing out a kind of aggression that is just the it's yes. aggression to the uniform. And that kind of brings us to the tone of the recent years. There's a real antagonism that is yes. emerged. Yes. And I can understand how that would make you feel real. That would make me feel very unsafe. Yes. And, very and it, unsafe. It, it comes from people in all walks of life. But now it's, there's more people who are likely to feel that they're right in being outraged at a police officer for their actions. And it's appalling to me.
That concludes this episode of Shenango Voice. Join us next week for the conclusion of our two-part series, Chokehold, an interview with Officer Liz Wonka, where Officer Wonka talks about training, the qualities that make for good police leadership, and why calls to defund the police are often about mental health crisis management. Please subscribe using your favorite podcast application so that you can be notified when our next episode is published. This episode of Shenango Voice is sponsored by the Bohemian Moon Restaurant. Bohemian Moon is kicking off their new Doshi Rock meal program in the first quarter of 2021. Doshi Rock is a monthly subscription meal plan featuring convenient weekly prepared meals for pickup or delivery. Dine-in service is available Wednesday through Saturday from 4.30 p.m. to 8 p.m. Dine-in times are subject to change, so please visit their website at twobakeriesandarestaurant.com or call 334-9480 for the current dine-in schedule and for more information about the safe and convenient Doshi Rock meal program. Thank you for listening.